I'm bothered. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. <laughs> this sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophies. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. When it comes to award shows, I'm pretty much washed. And no award show makes me feel more washed than when I watch the Grammys. I mean, that's because in any of the major categories, if I know one song in that category, that's a win. If I know two songs, then I feel hip. If I know three songs, I'm basically a record producer. And this year's Grammys, I watched from start to finish for the first time in years. And I didn't care how unhip it was going to make me feel. I had a bigger goal in mind. I wanted to watch Beyonce win album of the year. So the word of the week is recognition. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. Now, as we all know by now, Beyonce did not win album of the year. It went to Harry Styles. It was the fourth time in her career she's lost out on one of the most coveted awards in the music industry. If there's one thing I can say about the Recording Academy, it's that they are very consistent in snubbing Beyonce. The big four of the Grammys are Best New Artist, Song of the Year, Record of the Year, and Album of the Year. She's only won once in those categories. In 2010, she won for the song Single Ladies. Now, before I say what I want about this latest snub, it shouldn't at all diminish that on the same night Beyonce was snubbed for that award, she still set the record for most Grammy wins in history. She won three Grammys. And being able to achieve that, despite being largely shut out of the big four categories, makes the fact that she is now the most Grammy award winningness person even more commendable. But, and let me be clear, the Academy ain't shit. The other times Beyonce was snubbed didn't feel like this. The closest was when Lemonade lost out to Adele in 2017 for Album of the Year. But I ain't gonna front. That Adele joint was banging. It didn't possess the artistry or the vision of Lemonade. But fair enough. Okay, it's Adele's award. And even she was apologetic about winning it because she knew how monumental Lemonade was. But this snub felt a lot more personal especially for a lot of black women who have been in the same position as Beyonce, minus the international fame, where our own excellence is weaponized against us. Variety spoke to several Academy voters and granted them anonymity in exchange for them being candid about how they voted. One voter said, and I quote, "Okay, Adele, Beyonce, they always win. It's the same people over and over again. Another voter, described as a music veteran in his 70s, told Variety that he didn't vote for Beyonce because, quote, when she does something new, it's a big event and everybody's supposed to quake in their shoes. It's a little too portentous. Not going to lie, I had to look up the word portentous, which just means marvelous and amazing. So the issue wasn't that Renaissance wasn't critically sound. The issue is that Beyonce wins too much even though she's been mostly shut out of all the major categories. And the other issue is that her work 
is a little too amazing and marvelous. I just think it's funny how black women are constantly reminded that our magic is only worthy when it benefits everybody else but us. Beyonce showed up at the Grammys and wouldn't you know it, ratings were up 30% this year, likely because people like me were anticipating her having this moment that she has been denied her entire career. Ain't nobody show up for no fucking Harry Styles. No offense. We are reminded that our role is to serve, to compliment, to exceed, but we are often denied the access to the larger prizes, the credit, the compensation, the glory, the acclaim. Only three black women in the history of the Recording Academy have won Album of the Year. Natalie Cole, Lauryn Hill, and Whitney Houston. The Academy has a long storied and consistent track record of denying us its grandest prizes. A lot of people reacted to Beyonce losing out with the typical, well, what does it matter? Who cares about what these people think? They're never going to respect us. Why do we care so much about being accepted? There's truth in that. But here's another truth. When black people are upset about these things, it's not about being accepted by the mainstream. It's not about wanting white people to like us. Black people aren't fighting to be accepted. We're fighting for equity. We're fighting for what we deserve and what we are owed. We are not in this for recognition, but something far greater than that. Recognition. The word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guests today play one of the most charismatic, dynamic, slightly psychopathic characters in television history, which set the tone for an entire universe to be built off his foundational work. And frankly, it's a big reason stars became such a major player in the television drama space. He's played a multitude of roles over the course of his multi-decade career. He's been a killer, a foul husband, a kind romantic love interest. And on top of all that, he's a for real poet who also hosts his own podcast. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Omari Hardwick. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I got to make fun of you a little bit, Omari, because this was actually rescheduled, uh, this podcast, because I think the day we were supposed to record it just happened to be the day after the national championship game with your Georgia Bulldogs. You were at the game, correct? No, I didn't make the game. I went last year. You didn't make the game? No, I was here. 
So the championship game this year, Mill, was my birthday, the ninth. And then last year was the day before my birthday. Day. Okay. So I was thinking to myself, I was like, there is no way Omari's gonna make this podcast <laughs> if the Bulldogs win it all. I was like, it's not happening. He either is gonna be at the game or he's gonna be celebrating somewhere. <laughs> I was not mad at all. And then of course you're you know, you you Detroit native you. I mean, your alma mater wasn't close, but what, University of Michigan was close. I don't give a damn about them. Man, fuck Michigan. No, I'm saying your alma mater was not close, but the other side of the world was. And they didn't do what they were supposed to do either. So, yeah, it was it was a hell of a uh, final four, but not really. Yeah. It's 65 to 7, ain't of a final game. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I heard, trust me, I hate to hear from a lot of Michigan fans who were bitching about how they would have given Georgia a better game. And that might be true, but TCU was dog walking y'all. So I don't want to hear about it. Exactly. Trust me, if if Michigan would have played Georgia, I would have been the biggest Georgia fan on the planet. <laughs> you, Draymond, who else? Magic. Yeah, we're the petty ones in the rivalry. So, you know, <laughs> that's how we get down. Real beef. That's the real beef. That's the real beef right there. Um, but before we get any further, especially in the sports talk, because there are uh, a few sports things I want to go over with you, given what your background is and you being a former player. But before we get started, I'm going to ask you a question. I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you, Omari Hardwick, become unbothered? I think I made a decision pretty early, twice in my journey on this yellow crack road. Early on, I really realized that uh, if bothered is analogous with... um, giving way to the way that the industry stated that you should come in. I realized pretty early, Mel, that I was diametrically, and I can use that word with italicized, bold print, underlined status. I was diametrically in opposition to that which the industry kind of stated or showed through the movement, through the modus operandi, if you will, of the industry, what they wanted me to do and how they wanted me to move. I was so unbothered by sort of the rules of the game or the rules of engagement. And that was a positive in my life. And I think that I've stayed pretty true to it. But recently, this birthday, you speak about the onslaught of, you know, Georgia and and TCU and the whipping that TCU took. Um, I would say the second moment is kind of where we now find ourselves with Jamel Hill interviewing Omari Hardwick. You and I have known each other the better parts of over a decade now. This birthday in particular made me realize that a lot like the score, the score being University of Georgia at 65 and TCU at 7, I started to realize that I was giving a lot of 65 in energy, in presence, maybe in whatever wisdom God had humbly bestowed or has humbly bestowed upon me to give and impart, particularly those younger than me, and more specifically those who look like you and me, for energy or effort and not necessarily getting it back. And I don't think life is of equity. Coming from sports, I learned pretty early that life is not about fair or not fair. It's just is what it is. Probably the most pivotal tattoo that I have out of the 30 is it is what it is. But I definitely started to understand that I was um, becoming quite bothered by how much energy and presence and time and wisdom and love and whatever that thing is that God gave me. And maybe from the culture that you and I come from, sometimes we apologetically throw into others. So to not feel like we're floating at a level where others can look up at us or look over at us and say, yo, you think you big for your bridges? 
And I think that really got me for a long time. And I think it haunted me um, like a ghost, you know, pun perhaps unintended or intended. And uh, this is the major second moment that I've become unbothered by that, which I guess I hempecked myself to and was trying to make sure that everybody got pretty much everything from Omari as soon as you met me. And not necessarily in an immediacy type of way when I say as soon as you met me, but once meeting me, the loyalty of a wolf. Definitely the Capricorn in me has that. And, I, and I've poured into maybe too many spaces, too many people, too many groups, too many huddles without feeling like I was giving myself enough permission to take care of me. So I think the sky is finally the floor for me, Mel, because I think I'm finally looking to my future in ways of like, damn, look at all the shit I was able to accomplish being this exhausted. Imagine where I can go once I finally, you know, not only, uh, embrace that the oxygen mask has to be put on me first and foremost, but actually do the putting of the oxygen mask on me. Like, man, where could the flight go from here? Like I just got to that. And y'all obviously as women mature faster than us. I think a man doesn't really halfway know what's going on in life till about 35, but 49 years old for real. And obviously still playing 35, if not even 33, but it took me almost half a century to finally figure out how to become bothered enough. And then equally how one becoming bothered that I would be unbothered by people going, yo, oh, where you at? Yo, oh, you good? Like I'm totally unbothered by it now. If I vanish, then it's obviously what's most needed. You think about brothers like Twitch and other brothers who look like me who aren't that different in age from me. And I'm like, there's an implosion that oftentimes we can't put our finger on that is happening. Present participle, Mel. It's not, it happened. The implosion is happening. And sometimes it's in those of us that um, probably haven't given enough credit when looking in the mirror and brushing our teeth to go, maybe I'm imploding a bit too. I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, Twitch and from that standpoint, because uh, it, it does feel like that there is a very obvious yet underreported or underdiscussed discussed um, mental health crisis that's happening with black men where you see the suicide rates among black men are climbing, they're escalating. Uh, as somebody who has now made this realization about yourself that maybe you're pouring too much, given that that has been your default mode for so long, how do you put the safeguards in place to protect yourself mentally and to really control what you absorb? It's a loving question. It's rare for me to place the adjective loving in front of a question, um, but it's loving partly because you know me uh, Jamel, and you see me well in that very avatar way. You and I are definitely from the blue village together. We got big ass hearts, you know, and uh, you and I are ferocious. And so I think if ferocity meets sensitivity, when it's married together perfectly, and perhaps there is an anorexic line, I said to Stephen A., um, obviously a, a colleague of yours forever, a peer of ours, I said to him recently on an interview, I said, you know, there's such an anorexic line between love and hate. Like the next door neighbor to love is hate and vice versa. Next door neighbor to hate is love. And so if sensitivity and vulnerability and givingness is next door to receiving, I think the first thing that I had to come to grips with is being cool with receiving. You know, I think I definitely had an antenna on who to ask. I was never somebody that felt like I needed to look at the 48 laws of power. For example, a book like that or, you know, any other book that 
kind of tells you what they or what the writer or what tempos or lighthouses might illuminate that which many people look at and go, okay, so if the lighthouse or you know, signpost, if you will, is saying go this way, then I must have to go that way. I kind of felt like I didn't necessarily need to look much further than my family and the guidance that I got from them. And then of course, everybody's raised in an effed up normal environment. So then you throw all the shit that they taught you out the window and you go, okay, now <laughs> what direction should I really take? Once I got to that, then I started to really understand what true power was. And, and perhaps to your great loving question, Jamel, true power is full comfort in oneself. And and you and I both know that people don't get to that until, you know, there's a gradual gradient in life called staircasing. And once you get up those staircases, you do become less and less apologetic for the mood that you might be in that day, for the feeling that you might be in. If a fan runs up on you and goes, yo, 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 you might come back with yo, yo, yo. If they want a picture, no problem with the picture, but give me your name at least. Reciprocity, something for something. And I kind of always felt as such, and there's power in that. But there's equally power in knowing who to ask from, that what you need, and equally learning that, you know what, the greatest of, of life is that God, you know, will definitely surprise the heck out of you. There's no sense of humor greater than God's. And so whomever you've given to, I've become a lot more open with realization that you probably won't get it back from them, but be open to getting it back from somebody. And so once I got open about that, and maybe that's, you know, why I said it's a loving question, because sometimes even, even the questions that are asked, Mel, particularly us deep artists, and particularly us ferociously deep artists in football and basketball, baseball, and track up under my foundational lot in life, you know, if my feet ran through all four sports, it ran through it with an understanding of when someone asks you a question, stick around in a very pause-like way, a real laid-back, quiet way. Use the two ears God gave you versus the mouth and really take in that question they asked you. Like, really take it in and shoot it back. Like, if somebody says, how you doing? You know, so many people may give the proverbial, oh, I'm good. And I think I, I definitely always gave my permission or give myself uh, permission to answer it honestly. But for far too long, I realized that I was the giver of that mail. If somebody said it and I didn't necessarily believe it, and I'm paid to believe Naturi. I'm paid to believe Gabrielle Union. I'm paid to believe Jennifer Lopez, Halle Berry, Joseph Shakur, Dave Bautista, you know, all of these greats I've worked with or these novices who haven't really gotten going yet. You know, the Jacob Scipios, you know, and then again to the legends who've been there for a while, like a Tony Collette. Um, I'm paid to really believe is what they're saying, even via the writing of a great writer. Is it believable to me? So if I ask a layman, how you doing? And the layman's like, oh, I'm good. It's incumbent upon me with that gift given by God with two ears and a sense of when somebody's lying or not lying. It's incumbent upon me to go, no, nah, how you really doing? And for so long, I think what I was doing was I was doing that instead of receiving it when they would go, well, how you doing? Or perhaps they weren't asking enough. And so I deem it a loving question from you because you operate like that. You're intense, Mel. You're there. You've gotten in trouble for being intense. You've gotten in trouble for being passionate. You've gotten in trouble for being truthful. And so you speak my language. We both come from the Avatar Nation. And, uh, and for you to ask that, it really means that you want me to not implode. You're like, oh, I want to make sure that you're good. So you represent, as an archetype, legions of Black men who are presently not good, yet they're walking around like they're good. 
And, you know, we're raised by grandfathers and grandmothers that say, put God in Band-Aid on it and call it a day. <laughs> and God is cool, man. And he's the greatest of Band-Aid. But shit, sometimes we really need some counseling. We need some sit down with somebody that might be a complete stranger, even more than someone who actually knows you. So I think that's the big thing for me is giving oneself, giving myself as that oneself permission to receive someone truly asking, how are you? And then those who don't ask enough, you know, maybe shine away from them and maybe only gravitating towards those who really want to know how I'm doing. Like, I think those are the two things for me that I'm really focused on now. Yeah, it's um, and that was such a, a, a lovely response, especially it reminds me of something you said in a previous interview before where you called yourself off and different. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think you are, but I get why you said that because of course you don't know. Are you kidding me? Yeah, of course. I, yeah, I, I sort of get it. I quite appropriately named you. I mean, your freaking last name is what we're all trying to do in life, which is to climb a hill. <laughs> so, you know, yours is all about what did I do today that I could do better? What did I not do today that I should have done? You're just one of those growers. I'm learning that in a room of 10 people, like four try to grow. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. One is over in the corner. Yo, growth is like not in right now. That shit ain't in vogue. And then one is over in the corner losing their religion, trying to be with the other four that are trying to grow so that we can at least get half the room growing. We need one more to join the clique of four that are growing to make it pretty even. But you're a grower. So I think growers are off. Maybe I can now really expound upon what I meant when I said I'm off. Like, you got to be a little off to want to grow. Status quo is easy and mediocrity is. Is pretty mediocre. Yeah, because uh, the the reason if people didn't realize that before, um, it was a uh, the way you answered a question, it really hit home because I thought it was such a mature and I'm not sure what the other word I would look for to describe how you answered this, but you were asked. You did our mutual friend Ryan Clark the pivot. You did the pivot with Ryan and Chandler and those guys. Could you make Three Musketeers more beautiful than those three brothers? They are incredible, uh, funny, always have great conversations on there. And um, But one of them, I think it, Ryan asked you this. Uh, of course, a lot of people remember on social media, you caught a lot of unnecessary, totally undeserved negativity when there somehow was pictures of your family circling around the Internet. People realized that you were in a interracial marriage. And the way you answered this question in terms of how you handled that negative response that you received is that you said that you chose to look at it as nurturing. How on earth did you come to that perspective? Because I think most people, natural human beings, would have wanted to tell everybody to fuck off. That might have been one response. You didn't look at it that way. Why is that? You know, I did the classiest way of saying fuck off. And I, and I said, if I remember the first time that Jay caught flack. Jay being your wife. Yep. And so when I say nurturing, I think what's confusing as I wear my Rosa Parks shirt, right? I, I think what's confusing is, because I also stated this to Ryan, Fred, and Channing, I said, I am one, and this I never needed permission from or for, with two grandfathers, male, who both got their doctorate degrees, which is crazy. They both died at 91 years of age and they died within the years of power. So if you do the math on that, they would now be 96 or 95 years of age. I've been off power almost four years. And in reality, she might've been the favorite girl that I brought home for those two very brown to dark skinned black men. 
inclusive in that a, a grandmother who when I asked my 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 other grandmother, my mom's mother, you really take the J. Later in life, when I thought, and I have to forgive her if nurturing is the era she was brought in, right? And I'm gonna get to nurturing. She's brought up in an era where you could forgive a, a grandmother of any race being about the races not being together. You could forgive a grandparent or grandparents plural of that era, born in the 20s to the 40s, you could forgive any of them of any color, polka dot color included, if that was a, a race, for not being about races intermixing. But I asked that grandmother who might have had a slight issue in the beginning, not with Jay, but just with the fact, same way sisters might. And she said, I really do. I really do like Jay. And I could tell it was a shift. And I said, I said, it's, it's the pain, right? And she goes, yeah. Brave and Nova, my kids. I only put food on their table via the use of pain. You say, oh, but you give joy in performances. Absolutely. But Jamel, as Jay said years ago, the scariest thing about being next to an Omari is that most people who do what he does post his years of athleticism, which is still art and not given the proper garnered title of being uh, that of art. But as an actor, this man is not a paint by numbers guy. And most actors are go to the shop and figure out the right color to paint that character by the number stated of that which the character needs, perhaps in that specific corner or crevice of the character, not in totality of the character, but in that little on the left or on the right side of that character. They, fi they find a way to, to paint by numbers. And Jay used to say to friends, she would go, friends of, of course, every race, she would go, you know, what's hard about being with that motherfucker is that he truly has all the colors inside of him already. And so I guess, Mel, if all of those colors are inside of me, therein lies a guy walking into a cafeteria and the greatest of color inside of me, which Jay equally would have spent about five minutes with me and then given me the deuces, if first and foremost, the most prominent color inside of me is that of being a black man in America. And so here's the nurture. I come to a cafeteria table, Mel, Knowing my table, first and foremost, the nurture is the fact that I emote or extend that reality of self-awareness. I extend it. There's light in me that says not only is there light in me, but I'll flash the light on that which is the black in me. And I think it's confusing for a lot of black people to go, you know, I'm waiting to see that this nigga ain't really that. But he kind of really is that. So how the fuck could he be with? Well, I'm just different. I definitely think that God color is a different color than all the colors that we must acknowledge that we walk around on this earth as. Race is created by man. So I think when I think about God color, I just truly don't, don't think that it you know, has the same uh, necessity of conversation, that of which is necessary when me and Jamel are at the table as people given microphones, and way too many people have microphones presently that God didn't grant. You and I were granted a microphone, but he didn't want everybody to have a microphone. So those of us particularly who have a microphone, we have to sit at a table and broaden the minds and the horizon of our folks. Otherwise, we're just at that table forever. And there's no growth there. You actually don't make it out of the cafeteria if a fucking fire exploded in the cafeteria and you're still at the same table. If there's a door that's colored white, you got a lot of black people that go, nigga, I ain't going over that door. Shit is white. 
You're like, bro, it's fire like right here next to your face. That's cool, bro. I'll figure out how to get the right cream to get rid of that fire that's right here, bro. But I ain't going over there. Like I just never was that. And so you got to be a little off to think that far outside of particularly a race that so many of us have to think alike for survival purposes. We have to. And so I give grace and mercy for that forever. But when another color shows that that person or persons have had pain, we're the greatest barometer to go, I kind of fuck with that person. Why? Because they got pain. We're attracted to pain. And so oftentimes when we have people come into our world or at our cafeteria table, if Omari brought them in, the nurturing quality is, bro, come on, oh, I find that nurturing because what they're saying is, is this person going to hurt the table? I find it nurturing. And I guess the frustration I've had is if you know what you are your whole life, and this is super humble. If anybody's ever wondered if I carry humility, here's the greatest of display of it. What I carried in life since eight years of age, Mel, I always assumed everybody saw it in me. So if the greatest of what I carry is humility and leadership, then if I bring somebody to the table, you know they fucking cool. Don't fucking ask me if they cool. I brought them. That's cocky, oh, no, it's not. It's loving. I wouldn't bring anybody to the table that's gonna hurt y'all. So it's very confusing, not only for me, but for our race. And so I deem it nurturing verse, you know, trying to slander me or Jay or throw us in the water pisses me the F off. How could it not? That's my bride you're talking about. That's who God wanted me with, who I tried to run from. Because sometimes God will remind you of that which you don't realize you are. God might say, you, I built to be unbreakable, but you are human and flawed. And so I need to bring you someone who is yoked in a similar way. It's Ian for you. It's you for Ian. Someone yoked enough. People go, yo, oh, you could have found that in somebody colored, not Jay's color. For sure. For sure I could have. Or I could not have. Meaning the specificity of what God needed to add to me because he saw me on a slippery slope of, of, of becoming broken. I'm going to give you somebody that will aid in you not being broken. But for us to question God and to throw color in that of which God is doing or manufacturing when he brings souls together is kind of blasphemous, Jamel, for those same people to do that and then go to church and then go, kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya, everybody's great. Let's go to the club tonight, shake it up. Like, that's wild. But I know, you know, where it comes from. And, and that's a different conversation. And perhaps that's why I'm giving it to you, because that's one I couldn't expound on on Pivot, but I get where it comes from. How could I not? I come from the same cafeteria table. I get the pain. I get paid to play their pain. Not always mine, man. I get paid to play the pain, first and foremost, of our people. That's my payment. I actually get paid for that. So I got to stay, you know, akin to what their feelings are, just reminding them. What a proper, respectful checking fall back. First and foremost, I'm me. I said in a, in a joint I just recorded, I said, I'm a people person, but I'm me the most. And Mel, you would never respect me nor want to interview me if I was about you more than I'm about me. But you and I can, we can take it to the moon if you love you more than you love me. And I love me more than I love you. But the two of us love each other. Yo, that's crazy what the world could be. Black cops. Five of them drag a man to his car. That is uh It's not loving oneself. And that's not comparable to Jay being brought to the cafeteria table. 
especially when she's not running from it. She right there going, what's next? Right. Hey, can I cook for y'all? That's different. You got brothers that look like each other who are not at all doing much of anything for each other at the table, which is pretty crazy. Even killing each other. Like that's, that hurts. Like John Morant said, that makes it hard to say how you really feel. All condolences and, 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 and prayers go out to that brother's family. But, you know, it's a long time coming before we can actually say what we really feel because that becomes a riot in and of itself. If we all exclaim how we really feel about Tyree's killers looking like Tyree, that's crazy. Yeah, it, it has been a uh, obviously a very tough time because as you, you know, we're talking about there with Tyree Nichols and this young man losing his life to these five police officers who beat him to death. And I'm glad I did not fully watch the video. And I don't know it's so much about it that's bad, but I think one of the things that definitely will stick with me with this experience, as opposed to the many others we've unfortunately had to live through and witness is that these things have become their own kind of theater. And it is, that's really jarring. You know, that, that release of the video, you would have thought it was a movie premiere. What's the reason for that in your opinion, Mel? What's the reason? Is it social media? Is it the microphones of multitude that we speak about? Is it a disconnection to spirit? Is it that the devil is roaming so freely because there is that disconnect from spirit and that more than ever, people seem to be devilish to the left and the right of us? Is it that? Have we become so desensitized to an actual human life being taken? I wonder. These are all rhetorical questions, questions of rhetoric. But you as a journalist, I do wonder what you guys, what you conclude in, in, in think tanks that you are a part of. Like, why is it so theatrical? Well, I'm going to give you an answer. I'm going to leave people on the cliffhanger because uh, we're going to take a short break. And on the other side of this break, we'll not only have more from you and more questions that I have for you unrelated to this, but I will answer that question because I think I got a response. So back in a moment with Omari Hardwick. You'll be happy to know that for the moment, my unofficial docu-series of Us Versus the Squirrel is currently on hiatus. But I have a feeling we'll have some new episodes for you soon. So no squirrel talk this episode. Instead, I have a story to tell about what I've been doing with my husband out of town for work for the week. The answer, lots of binge TV watching. Here's why. I feel as if every couple struggles with TV watching etiquette, particularly as it relates to television series. With some couples, it's totally okay if one person decides to watch additional episodes and the other person is lagging behind. They don't mind watching it at two different speeds. Some couples have that official rule that if we start a series together, that means every episode we have to watch in sync. And I think that's kind of our unofficial rule in our house. But there's so much content out there that I want to often introduce new shows to the equation. And my husband is more of a let's finish this series before we start another one. Like he's very reluctant to start series. And with his pacing, we will never finish anything or never rather be introduced to something new. I mean, there's a collection of shows that that we watch together. Married at First Sight, Hell's Kitchen, BMF, Love After Lockup. Life After Lockup, the Below Deck franchise, Your Honor. Like we watch a lot of shit, but there's so much stuff out there that I want to watch that this week I took the opportunity to frankly leave him behind. I got my binge on. 
I binged Snowfall, which we started together initially when the show was at season two. We didn't stick with it, and it just kind of got lost in the shuffle. But yo, since then, I have returned, and that is because, in part, I have a guest from the cast who is coming up on an upcoming episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So in the interest of due diligence, I had to watch the show that she was on. And Snowfall had me in a choke hold. I finished that series in about three and a half days. And I cannot wait to the new and final season starts on February 23rd. It's a great series. And I know the late John Singleton, who created the show, would be proud of it. But here's what I always think when I watch drug dealer shows. Being a drug dealer is stressful as hell. I mean, my man Franklin on Snowfall, he been beaten up, shot three times by his ex, killed his ex's daddy, shot his best friend, engineered his own father's death. Fuck a bullet. How has this dude not had 42 heart attacks already? And this boy Leon, who is running the projects and living in the same projects that he runs. I mean, I get being close to work. But what the hell is the point of being a drug dealer and risking your life to make a lot of money if you still living in the projects? Just some observations. The other series I got hooked on while home alone is The White Lotus. I ain't gonna lie. I'm sort of drawn to series that feature terrible white people. It's why I love Secession and have gotten into Yellowstone. But the white folks on The White Lotus, in terms of terrible white people, they are a one seed. They might have Secession beat. If you haven't watched The White Lotus, I highly recommend it. And let me know on social media if you think that Harper and Ethan cheated on each other with the other couple that they were on vacation with. Be curious to hear your thoughts. So as of this recording of this podcast, I have one more day until my husband comes home. And I promise you, I'm about to get about four or five more episodes of Yellowstone in. And predictably, when I tell him that I finished Snowfall and The White Lotus, he'll be so annoyed that I watch something else without him. Buddy, I'm gonna need you to pick up the pace because the struggle is real. And now back to more with Omari Hardwick. That was a very interesting and appropriate question that you asked, because now all of a sudden I do think there is a level of, I don't even want to call them incidents, these murders. They are desensitizing us in real time. They are quite traumatic, I think, especially for uh, black people to look at, uh, since we're usually the subject of these. But when we knew and found out the video was going to be released, and it's, it is from a transparency and a accountability standpoint that, you know, there is video that we know there'll be consequences and that kind of thing. But the way it was treated, it was like a buildup. And I just found that to be just so, I was like, is this where we are right now? That, you know, if you have a show or if you are on the news you say oh any moment now the memphis police will release a video of a man being beaten to death like that's where we are and so there's something disappointing about that even though i realize the function of journalism on some level necessitates it because it seems like the only way people will be spurred to action is by continually being shocked and i hate that part of it mel i guess back to that word uh nurturing Full circle to your great question about, oh, you brought up on Pivot, you, you use the word nurturing. I wonder if that video and the rollout of it, the buildup, the, the, the drum roll, if you will, I wonder if it is so to validate or justify the nurture. And sometimes the nurture is revolt. Sometimes the nurture is the marching. Sometimes the nurture becomes wrongly rioting. 
whatever it may be, uh, you know, wrongly, perhaps I should put quotations around it. It's just people's reaction, anger, rage. Everybody should feel and be allowed to feel every, everything that they feel. So if you have feeling, particularly if you have, you know, a feeling off of something that you feel hurt about, pain, rage, I do wonder if the justification of those feelings that come out in marching and rioting and that which not only Memphis might become a part of because it's specific to where this brother died and where he was being raised. I wonder if the other cities often follow suit because the rollout of the video in that theatrical way then almost justifies. I mean, you see that shit? So we get to go do this shit. Like, it's like premiered. I, I wonder, it's why, because I wonder what you guys talk about often. As much as, Mel, you would love to visit set and go, oh, what is the banter between actors? Between like, I wonder often what journalism allows you to feel because you're not supposed to have a biased opinion or are you or, you know, what are the rules of engagement or non-engagement for a journalist? Particularly now that these videos are being rolled out in such a theatrical way that the journalist is left to have to be the sort of glue in between. You guys are the bridge now, the conduit. I wonder if these rollouts don't necessarily give everyone a microphone, but it justifies their feelings and everyone has feelings about what went down. Yeah. Speaking of feelings, uh, something that I thought you said that was very fascinating when you were talking about why or one of the many reasons why you were able to play Ghost James St. Patrick in the way in which you did was because it almost made it sound like you were saying you had to love the worst parts of who this character was. I think you said something along the lines of that you had to think about your flaws and your bullshit to play James St. Patrick. So what flaws and bullshit were you tapping into of your own to bring this character to life? I guess the singular focus that I have, I'm not someone if uh, in church recently, um, I heard a pastor say, and it was really dope. Um, and, and, and it's a church that Channing Crowder ironically introduced me to. Um, and the pastor appropriately named David, speaking of biblical, the pastor stated Jamel, or ask the question, and it's so apropos for the younger generation who's trying to skip out on the first thing I'm going to say, process. So much of the younger generation is trying to skip past all the steps necessary. When it becomes Jamel Hill or Mari Hardwick's intern, but come in asking us, yo, so can I get two phones? <laughs> Wait, you can't ask for one. Oh, really? Can I get at least some, some snaps on the Petro if you ain't going to give me the whole car? Like... So when the pastor said it, I'm like, wow, that's really deep and dope, like process and or seizing the moment, which are most important. And obviously, you know, the better parts of, of the congregation, Jamel said both. And the pastor said, correct, ding, 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 correct. Both, you got to seize your moment, but you got to be so good at the process to be able to seize the moment or to be granted the moment, the opportunity. So I think for me, the singular focus, the real Capricorn shit of I found a mark on the mountain and I'm not taking my view or my focus off of that mark until I'm at the top of the mountain. Jamel Hill might go, oh, I think that's dope. So many people want that level of focus or ambition or stick to or discipline. But. It definitely is the precursor, Jamel, to arrogance, to your way or the highway, 
to I don't want to debate it. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to do it my way. I think that a lot of what we bring to the table, Jamel, is really cool in its predecessorial type way. As the predecessor, certain traits are really cool. If the predecessor stops there and there's only the pre-production. Yo, you ambitious. You had a singularity and focus and in discipline. You started to climb up the hill. We're applauding that. But if once you get to the top of the hill, Jamel, you just start slinging shit. Like, nigga, I'm here now. Don't tell me nam shit. I'm so here. I think for me, a lot of what I was calling out as flaws in myself have not necessarily hindered me because I have a regulation button that has afforded me going, okay, that's a little too far. I think to play Ghost Jamel, I had to not pay attention to the button. But I know that Omari has the pre-production ability to go straight buck. And all the narcissism that goes found. I don't think he started at narcissism, but what he ended up at. Whether it was Courtney's pen or whether she needed a reason to get rid of me, you decide. But either way, the pre-production of that, which this guy became in production in fronts of 11 million people watching. I think Omari carries a lot of that in pre-production. And it could go really bad if I didn't have certain people and certain things and certain foundational things that have allowed me to not just be of discipline, but but also to be of kindness and humility. And so I played him from the place of how does it smell, though, if some of this shit that's pretty cool in you went real, real bad? I played it from that place. You got to really look at the stuff that you don't necessarily like going to sleep with. That's what people are tuning in for. They say it's the cool suits. They say it's the bow-legged walk. No, I was born bow-legged. I didn't fabricate the walk. That's the waddle. You can call it swagger all you want. Nigga, I waddle. Jay-Z said he walked like a ball player. Nigga, I really walk like a ball player. So whatever you find cool, if you just chill for a minute and go, but what's so not cool about the character? Okay, okay, let me decide whether that's Omari or whether that's... And you said it best, Jamil, right before this, we came back from break beforehand. You said, oh, it's a cliffhanger. Let me leave it there before I answer your question. I mean, art should be that of being a cliffhanger. Our job is to make you think forever. To that point about, you know, you digging into the parts that maybe you don't like so much, you know, the narcissism that that ghost uh, clearly had. Because one of the greatest lines I think you ever said in uh, on that show is when he told Tasha... Tasha, can't you see I'm grieving? I lost the love of my life and not talking about her. I was like, that's some cold ass shit. But Mel, you got to always remember. And I do appreciate the fans that do remember. I asked her, Tasha, you never see me as more? You did. You never see me as more? Mel, don't forget I asked her that. The issue is that that brother stayed with Tasha. He stayed with her in the sense that, Mel, if you called me and said, oh, I'm having marital issues. Many of those issues we can figure out. But there's one issue that's very hard to get past. If somebody that you marry doesn't want you to fly to your highest, how could you ever go to sleep with them again? That means that even in the bed, the sex ain't what it should be. Because they're not fully passionate about everything that's passionate in you. They're not fully passionate about everything passionate in you. I saw Tasha as bigger. I saw Tommy as bigger. 
I as ghost. I saw Tommy as bigger and Tasha as bigger. So the irony is as much as narcissism could be stapled and moniker or label or title to this guy, ironically, in many ways, he might have been the most giving, the most loving, and the most humble. He was definitely the most supportive and the one who believed the most that these two could be way bigger than that of just being a drug dealer in the greater parts of New York City. So, you know, he's still a guy who's broken. I come from a big, rich town, right? I just came from the poorest part. And I think 50 nailed that song. Like, when you come from the poorest part, that's back to that cafeteria analogy. You're coming from a table that's really small. And the table's broken with cracks in it. And ain't many roses growing out of them cracks. So all you know is you got a couple shots at taking a crack at being big. And if you got people around you, wife most imperatively, and she's going, nah, what's big? We already big. You got it, baby. It's hard. But I do agree. Narcissism then makes its way in statements like, yo, I'm grieving. My love. Please move out of the way, wife. And it ain't you. <laughs> it's real. Wife had already moved out of the way when she said, later for you trying to be bigger, what's bigger? We got everything we need. To me, she had already made a decision to move out of the way. Courtney just didn't write a divorce in. That's what the fans have to remember. Like, what if the writing was that a divorce actually happened? Is Ghost that bad then? Or even deeper, Jamel. What if the mistress is the same race as the wife? Mm. <laughs> Uh, well, let me, let me ask. embrace that. It's true. I was team Tasha. Definitely. Mostly because I felt Cause you're about flying. You want brothers to have the greatest of flight. So why were you team Tasha? I was for this simple fact is because as much as ghost wanted to be bigger, I thought Tasha really knew intrinsically like who he really was when it got down to it, because uh, murder fit ghost came out quite a bit. <laughs> All right? yeah. Murder fit ghost came out even in business even in business, you know what I'm saying? And so I felt like she really knew that. You astutely answered the question. I can't argue at all with that. You you have a director who came in one time and said, I don't think the kids know Ghost. And I said, yes, they do. And you can't be a director telling me that which I curated with the aid of Courtney, with the aid of 50 and with the aid of Joe. The four of us kind of curated Ghost. You can't tell me that the kids don't know Ghost. Just like the darks of Omari, Brave and Nova know. They know some real bad shit that I've done. They know some shit mail that you don't know. Because I gave birth to those kids. So I'm not real big on like fabricating my life. They, they can't know everything, but they know some dark shit. Like, oh shit, Papa's not. Mm, all right. And so I, I begged to differ with the director. And it was a director I, I highly respect and trusted. And he sat and listened. And he was like, oh, that makes sense. I said, they might not necessarily understand entitled what the streets of New York think of when they hear ghost. But absolutely, they know, I guess, the fabric and the thread of that guy. They know he's an ominous figurine. They know he's ferocious. They know that their pops has a way about him. They know that he's doting and loving, which Omari's doting and loving, but I'm also super crazy, which you can't be the character if you're not. So this guy is somebody that I agree you answer correctly in that which I asked you, which is why were you team Tasha? Your point is, if the kids know that side of that guy, oh, Tasha not only knows it, she was perfectly befitting of that side, whereas the mistress was not. Completely agree. Completely. So basically, Ghost was lonely. One woman knew and embraced one side of me. The other woman embraced another side. 
but can can I find something that embraces both and rocks out with? That's hard. That's that's hard to find sometimes in life, but also in fiction called a show. So I think he was a lonely dude. And we never got to see why he was so lonely because, you know, basically Ghost met his uh, his fate at the hand of his son. He met his fate. Yeah, which was a, a, a plot twist that was, I, I thought, really, you know, it's hard to do a final series or a final season of a series. Like, it's hard to end them. Nobody's ever satisfied at the end of it. But I, I thought that was as good of any series that ended. Do you miss playing this character at all? No. Why not? Because the colors are all in me. You got to remember the colors are there, to Jay's point. You can't miss what's already in you. What you're asking, Mel, is, oh, do you miss being Michael Jordan if you were Michael Jordan? Michael would say, Mel, I'm Michael Jordan. If Jamel said, do you miss running up and down the basketball court? Michael could go, yeah. Yeah. But remember something, Mel, in my world of art versus a basketball player, and I'm not at all comparing myself to the greatest basketball player ever to play. But what Michael has proven to miss in basketball is not the same as you asking him, do you miss yourself? Michael goes to sleep and wakes up with himself every day. He doesn't miss himself. If anything, he might want to get away from himself. What he misses is perhaps the locker room banter the camaraderie, if you will. He misses competing. But in my world of art versus the world of art as it pertains to sports and sports figures, highly touted legends, the greatest of all time, or the novices who are rookies. Those characterizations or qualities in me, Mel, get to live another day in some other character. It's always there. Michael can't really pull that out in the same way for something else, the way he needed it in basketball. Maybe in business here and there, a talk, a Zoom or, or, or two, but the ferocity of which made him the greatest to ever do it, or that of, you know, Paul Newman to Sidney Poitier to Cicely Tyson to Meryl Streep to Repford to Steve McQueen to Marlon Brando to Denzel Washington to Viola, like, Don Cheadle, Jeffrey Wright, some of my favorites. Like these are some of the greatest to ever do it. Daniel Day-Lewis, Robert De Niro, Pacino. They're the greatest to ever do it. Them motherfuckers could do it till they were 90. Inclusive in that, the use of colors, male, that were already in them. Athletes only get to go to about 39. And that's new. Shout outs to Braun and Serena. You know, and, and, and Tom Brady, like that, or, or medicine, technological advances and health advances. advances. Uh, there was no opportunity for, you know, whether Arthur Ashe left this earth too early or not. In his era, he wouldn't have been able to play as long as Serena or Michael. So, you know, shout outs to many a thing that have allowed these athletes, Dennis Rodman included. I mean, what kind of condition was he always in, Jamel? Dennis Rodman played like he was 20 years old every year. But in reality, once you hang it up, you could actually ask them, do you miss playing ball? Using or using, sorry, the things that are inside of you that you needed to play ball. Yeah. Damar Hamlin, if, if young, beautiful Damar, who is all about the world and the community. And I've started to get closer to him. It's, it's really cool just communicating with this brother that was already about the world. I'm like, God is so masterful. He used a man that was already about the world. He allowed the man to stay alive. So the world could get more from the man 
who was literally pronounced dead two or three times. I don't think I'm off. And now he's back. But if you say DeMar, okay, going forward, is it no more ball? Like he's a great example. Is it no more ball? DeMar's going to tell you, Mel, when you interview him, because you will interview him. You know you, you'll get him. He's going to say, hell yeah, I miss it. If he never gets to play ball that young again. But if you said, do you miss being DeMar Hamlin? He would go, I'm, I get to be DeMar. God gave me a second lease on being able to be DeMar. So the second lease, Mel, that I always have is that those colors, minus selling illegal narcotics through the greater parts of New York City and minus plugging, you know, 45s or nine calibers with bullets inside into the heads of people, minus those two things, so much of Ghost is Omari. So I can't miss me. If anything, I'm tired of me. If anything, I can't wait to interview you. Tired of me. (laughs) Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, DeMar Hamlin. And, you know, for those who are listening who do not know this, uh, you played football, you played at University of Georgia, and I think you played in the NFL for the Chargers. And so how long did it take you to get over not having the athletic dream turn out the way you thought it, it would? Because do you miss that? <laughs> I, I miss the contact. I miss the physical contact. You know, even in the movie, in the fantasy football movie, uh, you didn't know this, Mel, but I, you know, tore the knee and got surgery in August and it's repairing well. And the ankles, both of which got the PRP injections, obviously they're still studying stem cell. There's research still happening to see how productive it actually is because I couldn't get surgery on the ankles, but I got it on the knee. I got it on the left knee in the fight scene or after the fight scene with 50 in season two of Power. I had it in the left knee at 21 years of age, trying out for the league. So the physical contact, I say that to say I have found it in this second part of my life called that of being an actor. I have found it. But perhaps I finally found it in old world meeting new world in fantasy football because I was actually going through a lot of that old stuff. Did it take fantasy football, you may wonder, Jamel, to be the thing that got me past the missing of that level of of play or that level of contact? I want to say yes, but in reality, I kind of got over it once around four to five individuals who, while at the University of Georgia and being my teammates, said to me when hearing the poetry or watching me on stage when I was doing plays in school, yo, if the football don't work out for you, my G, nigga, you got something over here. When those five, four to five, Champ Bailey walked in the Hall of Fame, Robert Edwards, to me, if he doesn't tear his knee up in the rookie All-Star game, he makes it to the Hall of Fame. Not fair to say, because it was his rookie season at New England, but I think he becomes one of the great running backs of all time. Terrell Davis, one of those who was in my ear about what he thought I could be if it didn't work out in football, walked in the Hall of Fame. Travis Stroud, he stands out too, played for a little bit in the league. There's some real... Gifted people, Heinz Ward included. There's some real gifted people, Mel, as you know, who really went and did it. And so it aided me getting over it because it was a moment of like, oh, I'm not that. I'm decent, but I'm not that. You know, and that that that's different. God will speak through your teammates. And, and so it's a beautiful thing for Champ now to be coming full circle. And now, you know, he's a young producer and I can call him young. He's an old head in sport, but he's this young producer who's saying, hey, oh, Help me in this world of producing. As much as Kobe wanted in, I want in equally. So it's a beautiful thing for for me to be able to usher him into this world. 
And Jamel, I know something that you're proud of is all of these young athletes, particularly the black athletes, they're figuring out a life after before they even leave the league. Yeah, they are. They're much more cognizant of that. Yeah. Well, before I get you out of here, Omari, because you've been so gracious with your time, I'm going to play a game with you that I play with all my guests on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Let's do it. Yes. Uh, it's very simple. The game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices and you got to pick one. Denzel in Man on Fire or Denzel in Training Day. Man on Fire. Denzel in Man on Fire. And I said it to his face. I'm going to give you an extra credit. I said it to his face. <laughs> and what did he think of that? <laughs> he loved it. He said, you know what, oh, that's been climbing up the charts when people get asked. I'm saying Ooh. it's underrated. Mel, I'm going to watch that, Mel, just because you told me to. I'm watching it. All right. Who was a worse husband, Andre Daniels, <laughs> your character in Being Mary Jane or Ghost? <laughs> Come on, Andre Daniels. Andre Daniels. Yeah, he was terrible, dog. <laughs> I told Mara, I had a bone to pick with Mara. I said, Mara, can you get this man something? I said, and you know why? You know why, Mel? Because at least Ghost has a job. Yes. Andre barely had a job. I know. I said, how come he's got a BMW? They were like, oh, he's got a job. I'm like, wait a minute. Well, and then not only that, it's just uh, the one thing about Ghost, which is what I think made him so complex and so uh, really such an amazing character, is that he was an anti-hero that you knew was a little psychopathic, and yet you rooted for him in every situation. I was like, I just, you, you hit that note so perfectly. Always giving us a reason to root for Ghost. Better scene when you mush Tasha in the forehead or when you pulled that gun on Tariq. <laughs> I got to say mushing of uh, Tasha. Because let me take a moment. People have asked me, what is it about Naturi? And I rooted for her. Tasha was supposed to be an older actress. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, she told me, which was crazy to me. Like she was supposed to play much, much older. Yeah. You know, there were many actresses, one of whom I dated at one point. She was up for it. You know, and, and, and the many, many of the sisters felt afraid of what grandmas would feel. You feel me? To play the Lady Macbeth character. Tasha as a character's gift is that Naturi played her. Because Naturi's gift, Jamel, is her bravery. She's such a courageous actress. And I love that about her. I forever will. She's courageous in her defense and love of me. And she's courageous in her defense and love of Tasha. And so we, as two people who trust each other so much, we came up with the mushing of the face. So a lot of people might feel away. She gave you the backstory. But because we trust each other so much, there are not many actors who could get away with grabbing her face like that. Naturia, tell you in a minute, I'm from East Orange. Oh, and I'm like, I know you're from East Orange. You don't need to remind me from Jersey. I know. But because of the relationship that we have, it allowed for me to feel safe enough to do that to a woman, which is not easy for me to do. It's as hard as sex scenes. Sex scenes are extremely difficult. So if I was courageous and brave enough to be involved in sex scenes or any actor, and particularly the specific actors on those types of dramatic shows, then equally, we had to be courageous to go to a place where she said, it's cool, though. You can grab it. I'm going to back you up into the fridge and you're cool with the force of backing into the fridge with my hand on your face. Yo, I'm good with it. So I think that's a better scene because it's two scene partners getting together and we kind of created that. That wasn't on script. The mushing of the face was not on script. That is taking advantage of a beautiful, not only synergy and chemistry, but a beautiful relationship that was set 
in a foundational way prior to her coming to the show and playing Tasha. Whereas the gun to Tariq's head, that was written. And shout out to Michael Rainey too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's a great actor. Think about it. Those kids grew up with us. So in many ways, I ended up, you know, sharing my duties as father to Novin Brave with being a father figure, at least to uh, Michael Rainey Jr., Rayman, as I call him, who I love, and obviously Don Shea, who I call Don Shea. So me and Naturi, definitely me, because I'm, I'm a bit older than Naturi, had to play Papa in real life equally. So he trusted me. Both were tough scenes. That's a great question. But I think the mushing of the face, and that was just hard, right? Like H-A-R-D-T. That was hard. <laughs> And, and uh, final one, since you you summoned his name earlier, Champ Bailey or Darrell Revis? Champ. You still going Champ? <laughs> yeah, but but Darrell's in there. I named what I named about. I mean, yeah, I, Ty Law. I love Ty Law. I brought up, I brought up my man. You know, I'm talking corners, right? We're not talking free safeties or strong, because that goes to another place. Correct. But uh, correct. We're talking cover corners. Yeah. <laughs> Darrell is up there, and Darrell did it off a of man strength. That was just like old grandpa strength. I'm going to move you as a receiver where I want you to go. And what a righteous brother. I've been around Darrell a lot, and, uh, and, I, and I like that brother. But I'm going to go with CB. I'm going to go with my college teammate and dearest of friend, CB. Well, Amari, thank you so much for hanging out with me, giving me this time. We've been long overdue for a conversation. I haven't seen you. It's been a, a little bit. It was BT, right? I think it since was BT. Yeah. Yep. It was BT. Yeah. When we we did uh, one of the genius talks. So it's been a while. So I'm hoping that I'll run into you one day in these streets. And I, you know, I should thank you because now I'm a part of the power universe playing the intrepid reporter. <laughs> a couple of times. Yes. Yes, you are. I found out today that, uh, and I can say it because it was made public that Michael Ely became a part, who's a dear friend. I saw that. Yes. Michael Ely is coming to the power universe. Yeah. That's a pride point. How could it not be like all the people that are eating off of what, what we created as a, as a team. And I'm, and I'm super proud and very humble. And Mel, I always love seeing your face. I do. I always love seeing you. And I appreciate you what you do for the culture. I really do. I want you to hear that. And by the way, you should also hear, because I think a lot of people don't understand what Stars was before Power became the show it became, is that Stars was frankly not relevant. And you guys, your character specifically made that into a network. And all the things that they have going on now, it started off the backs of what you all created. Because Stars was not considered to be a player in sort of the premium cable. We were absolutely number seven. Yeah, y'all brought that to them. So people need to realize that. I'm super proud of that and all that's come from it. So I appreciate you saying that. It means a lot. All right. Well, Amari is getting out of here. Uh, y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. I know some of y'all will clown me, but I'm about to cite the shade room. Listen, I have range. I read the New York Times and Washington Post and the L.A. Times every day and also the shade room as well as Jasmine Brand. Got to keep up with all the worlds that are happening. Got to be versatile. Anyway, the shade room cited several major court cases that changed the lives of black folks in this country. Brown versus Board of Education, which ruled segregation in public schools were unconstitutional. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and a 1961 executive order that required government contractors to hire minorities. 
Much to my surprise, the comments underneath the post weren't exactly appreciative of the progress. Whole lot of, but where did it get us? Whole lot of integration ruined us and we were better off just being on our own. Whole lot of ungrateful and fuck it, I'm bothered. I get it. We're all frustrated. We all wanted major progress to have happened yesterday, if not the day before that. And of course, those rulings that I cited, that was major progress for the times. And we definitely shouldn't diminish that as well. But what we can't do is let our frustration make us unreasonable and most importantly, forgetful of history. See, it's true on some level that integration was a mixed bag. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said of integration during the latter stages of his life, I fear I am integrating my people into a burning house. It is true that integration came at a cost. Our talent and resources were outsourced to white institutions who suddenly had increased access to our culture. But separate but equal never existed in any form for us. The reason Dr. King and other leaders fought for integration is because it gave us better access to the opportunities we've been systematically denied under so-called separate but equal. This idea that we were better off on our own wasn't exactly true. We weren't safer. We weren't richer. And in fact, anytime that we tried to build our own and increase the distance between us and white folks, we were often met with physical violence. We created our own version of Wakanda in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with Black Wall Street in the early 1920s, had our own banks, businesses and infrastructure. And what happened? The white folks burned that shit to the ground and destroyed everything. This was an unfortunate but successful tactic that was used many, many times against us. I know so many of us think the solution is to build our own and that indeed can be a remedy and a way for us to reduce the harm that is done to us. But it's not like we can live in a separate universe where nobody bothers us. Even if you start a business, you have to involve the system to start and build that business up. We can save our money, but even if we want to create wealth, it involves us using financial systems that were meant to exclude us and did once exclude us. Now, I don't want you all to get the wrong idea and think, I'm against us being self-sufficient and creating our own, whatever that may be. We should actively always be doing that as much as possible. But we should also be amassing political, social and economic power to break these systems of exclusion and oppression. As we strive to break these systems and get deep into our liberation bag, let's remember something important. The reason there is often resistance to our collective empowerment is because black folks figured out a long time ago that we can live without white folks. They can't live without us, which is why they have fought so diligently to keep us separate and subjugated. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, 
William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven, five, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.